It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to episode 149 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is clinical trials, what family caregivers should ask. A clinical trial is medical research using human volunteers. For example, a clinical trial may may give a drug to volunteers who have high blood pressure to see whether their blood pressure drops. Besides drugs, clinical trials may investigate medical devices or medical procedures or changes in diet or other changes that can affect health. Clinical trials may compare a new drug to an existing drug or compare a new drug to a lookalike drug which contains no active ingredients, and that's called a placebo. When a clinical trial involves a new drug or device, no one may know whether it will be helpful or harmful or whether it will be similar to existing drugs or devices, which is why there are protections. And there are times when family caregivers and their family members are approached about clinical trials. Now, to talk about clinical trials and the questions that family caregivers should ask, our guests are Sharon Brigner and Dr. Joe Hermang. Sharon is deputy, a deputy vice president for the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, a trade association in Washington, D.C. She's a registered nurse and holds a master's degree in health systems management. She also works her weekends as an emergency room nurse at Innova Rest and Hospital in her Northern Virginia community. Previously, she worked for the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. Her work experience includes the General Accounting Office, Congressional Office of Senator Chuck Robb, the Center for Health Policy Research and Ethics at George Mason University, and the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. And at Texas Women's University in Houston, she served as president of the National Student Nurses Association and president of the Texas Nursing Students Association. Now, Joe is Senior Vice President, Life Sciences for ML Strategies. He's author of 60 scientific publications and is is inventor or co-inventor of 35 U.S. patents. He holds a Ph.D. in neuroscience. Previously, he was Senior Director of Worldwide Science Policy for Pfizer Incorporated. Prior to Pfizer, he was Vice President for Science, Technology and Business Development at the Rhode Island Economic Development Corporation and Head of Science and Technology at the Rhode Island Economic Policy Council. In 1999, he was appointed Governor Lincoln Allman's Advisor for Science and Technology and he's also held, held positions at the Bristol Myers Squibb Company, 
in Alzheimer's disease research and at Cytotherapeutics, Providence, Rhode Island, as Director of Cell and Molecular Neuroscience and Director of Ophthalmology Therapeutic Program. Now, welcome to the show, Sharon and Joe. Thanks, Dr. Atherley. Thank you very much. Good. Now, I'm going to start with you, Sharon, please. Please just tell us a bit more about your career background and particularly your work with the pharmaceutical research. Thanks, Dr. Atherley. It is a pleasure to be on your show today and a pleasure to be on with Joe and um, a delight to talk to your viewers, the caregivers of of our patients out there. And just to give a little bit of background of my, for me, in addition to what you said, I really started with clinical trials about 15 years ago in neuroscience. I worked at NIH, National Institutes of Health, Neuroscience Center, um, Neurological Disease and Stroke, and worked doing direct patient care with patients who came from all over the world that had neurological diseases or conditions, and we were conducting clinical trials on these patients um, with their consent, and it resulted in some amazing drug discoveries and treatment discoveries that I'll never forget. Very exciting. Joe, um, please tell us more about your career background, and in particular, your work with ML Strategies. Thank you very much, Dr. Atherley. It's, it's great to be on your uh, program today uh, to cover this very interesting and uh, critical topic, of course, in, in medicine today. Uh, my, my position at ML Strategies uh, is one of, uh, we are a consultant and uh, strategic uh, uh, services to uh, providing strategic and consulting services to the life sciences industry. Uh, I just uh, began uh, there just a little over a month ago, uh, but um, I have uh, really been been gratified with the uh, the, the work uh, to to this point, uh, and, and looking forward to working uh, very closely with the uh, biopharmaceutical uh, industry. Uh, as I as I uh, as you pointed out. I'm a neuroscientist by training, and I've I've spent the the greater part of my career uh, working in in the area of neuroscience. But uh, over the last uh, ten years or so, I've been spending most of my time on the on the uh, on the policy end of of uh, of science, uh, working with uh, key lawmakers, with policy professionals, uh, both at the government and academic level, and then within industry. Uh, to to identify uh, uh, specific challenges that face the the industry, uh, both the biotech and pharmaceutical industry, and to uh, uh, to set policies which allow the industry to continue to develop life saving treatments. I'm going back to Sharon now. You mentioned um, the excitement. I think that's the right word. You you experienced with the clinical trial work in neurology and relating to neurological diseases. So please, would you say more about clinical trials, particularly on the question of why they're important? Absolutely. In in my job today at Pharma, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, I'm working for our industry trade association that represents all of our our, um, U.S. biopharmaceutical drug companies, about 28 member companies that are working very hard to come up with new and improved 
treatments. And what clinical trials are specifically is it's conducted to prove the safety and effectiveness of these medications that the Food and Drug Administration requires um, before they'll approve a treatment for a patient. So these clinical tests are amazing. I didn't realize when I was um, at NIH how very long it actually takes to bring a new medicine to market. It can take an average of 10 to 15 years, and the clinical trials portion accounts for an average of seven of those 10 to 15 years it takes to bring a new drug from development to patients. And it involves thousands of patients, uh, volunteer participants. Um, it has, we have literally tens of thousands of pages of technical and scientific information, and clinical trials are responsible for about 45 to 75% of the $1.2 billion it costs to bring a new medicine to market. So it's interesting to understand the clinical, uh, the, the end of it that's so scientific, but for patients, these clinical trials represent a potential for an additional therapeutic option that they may not have, or it might be for a new patient population, such as children, that currently have not had those treatment options available to them, or it could be even defined ways that these clinical trials are trying to make existing drugs more effective, like fewer side effects, or maybe a little easier to um, to administer. So, clinical trials have a variety of different exciting opportunities for patients. Um, it's just finding that right one with your healthcare provider and making sure it's the right one for you and your family. That's so very important. Joe. Let me ask you about how clinical trials benefit family caregivers and their family members who participate in the trials. How do they benefit? Well, there is a great meal, a deal of medical need today. Clearly, there are many wonderful medicines and therapies uh, that are available to, to uh, uh, patients and, and uh, sufferers of, of various uh, diseases, but there's so much more that needs to be done. And medical uh, advances today are dependent on, on these studies. Uh, so participating in, in clinical medicine, participating in a trial uh, as, a, as a patient is, is, a, is a wonderful uh, gesture, a wonderful, noble uh, uh, thing to do. But it also, as, as um, we just heard from Sharon, it, it offers the opportunity for some patients uh, particularly, um, you know, today you, you, you hear about uh, all the uh, incredible things that are going on in the field of oncology. It, it, it offers opportunities for patients who, who may not have treatments to actually uh, uh, get a treatment. That there's no guarantee going into these studies, as you said from the outset. It's quite clear that, that uh, these are clinical, um, uh, these clinical studies uh, do not have a guarantee at the end of the uh, end of the road, but we do know that without doing careful studies with the with the, the kind of uh, integrity and and um, uh, careful uh, uh, monitoring that that goes on in clinical medicine today, without that, uh, new therapies can't come to the marketplace. Patients, it's clear, for the family caregivers obviously gives family caregivers the opportunity to see a medical advance uh, for uh, hopefully for for their loved one and uh, of course they know they go into it knowing 
uh, that they're that they're advancing medical science, uh, helping to advance medical science, and that's obviously a wonderful thing. That's a very important story, a very important message, because what you're both saying is this is the leading edge um, of medical treatment against some of the most serious and worrying diseases, including those which at the moment have no cure. So it's hard to imagine anything that's more important, more exciting and more promising. But also, as you both said, there's a lot to it. It takes time, it takes effort and it takes care. Now, at this point, we're going to take a short break. Um, this is what I always say is where we pay the rent. This is Dr. Bortnadley, and my guests are Sharon Brigner and Dr. Joe Hermang. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We will be back. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to share success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Hear about personal growth, building a better business, inspirational life stories, and personal branding. You'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Sharon Brigner and Dr. Joe Hamang. Our topic is Clinical Trials, What Family Caregivers Should Ask. So now let's ask and talk about the ways in which 
clinical trials are organized, about the people who are the subjects of the research and how people are recruited for the trials. So let's start with you, Joe, please. Who are they? What types of people are they who are typically the subjects of research and clinical trials? And how do you, how are they recruited? Well, as you know, there are three, generally three phases of clinical medicine. There are, there's, there's a fourth phase, but, but for the sake of this conversation, three phases of clinical medicine. Uh, phase one where um, drug is, uh, a potential medicine is given to healthy volunteers, and those healthy volunteers are then followed for a relatively short period of time, and they um, assess, the, the, uh, the investigators then assess um, how the drug is metabolized, where it ends up in the body, how it is uh, tolerated, etc. There are no, in, in most cases, in those cases, there are there is no goal of of uh, trying to determine um, any any efficacy of of a drug or whether it's actually working. Those studies in phase one are generally uh, uh, small numbers of patients, dozens. Uh, they are very short, and those. Studies are generally, excuse me, uh, recruited by um, the companies that are, are are developing medicines. So those are directly recruited in a clinical research unit. In phase two and phase three, when um, the studies get larger and when um, more sophisticated uh, questions about uh, efficacy. The usefulness of the potential usefulness of the drug, and um, uh, when they get to that point, there are, are there could be hundreds or, or thousands, and in some cases, tens of thousands of patients, and those are recruited um, usually through research organizations, contract re- research organizations, and clinicians, doctors who do clinical trials uh, in their specific areas of, of interest. Um, whether it be in metabolism or in neuroscience or in cardiovascular disease, so they will pick patients from their population, from from their client uh, um, base uh, that would fit necessarily, you know, into the the criteria that have been set up by the investigators in advance of the study. Right, Sharon, over to you. What? sort of information is collected about the people who participate in clinical trials and who is the information collected from? Well, that that uh, information is very different from what is collected when you go to a doctor's office, for example, and they take your medical history. We For clinical trials, they need an entire history of family disease. They need to understand allergies. They need to understand the complete medical history and physical exams are conducted. And this information is protected. It's kept confidential, just as information is when you go to see your doctor. Um, and confidentiality is of utmost most important for that patient and that clinical trial team because that at no point can that information be shared unless the patient um, authorizes it and that general information could be published but again only after the clinical trial is complete um, and, it, that it, and it's only shared with doctors if that patient allows. So it's very confidential and um, very comprehensive uh, type of medica- medical information that's collected by the patient. Right. Just a quick supplementary to that. Supposing my son, daughter, 
whatever, a child is a participant in a clinical trial, would I, the parents, ever be asked for information about my child of any kind? Sharon? I'm sorry, Dr. Ethel. Um, that you could, uh, it, that, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question one more time? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm the parent of a child, let's say, and yes. the doctor suggested that I, my daughter, should be uh, participate in a clinical trial. And I'm asking the question, really, would I, the parent, ever be asked for information about my daughter, um, uh, health or her background or whatever? Would that happen? You know, Dr. Ethley, I'm not completely sure. It would depend on the clinical trial, and of course, nothing is disclosed unless the patient or that the adult, if the if the patient is a minor, the adult um, or the parent um, gives direct permission. It is uh, again very carefully safeguarded information, um, very confidential, and um, is not disclosed unless that patient or the patient's guardian slash parent would authorize such. To my knowledge, Joe, do you know? If that's the case. No, I think that's, I, I agree with you. Okay, that's very useful. That's very helpful. Now, Joe, for any medical research, the persons involved have to give their permission first. Who can and can't give permission for someone to participate in a clinical trial and why? And what I'm really asking is the same kind of question that sure. I asked just before. That is, can parents give permission for their children to participate or can people whose elderly parents aren't quite able to give their own permission can the family caregiver give permission under those circumstances Joe? Yes this is a really important question um, clearly and and I think there's a fair amount of, of confusion sometimes and misinformation about this first and foremost those, person, those people who are involved must give their permission if they're able to give permission. That is, um, obviously, uh, for a, a, a child um, uh, who enters you know, a clinical study, a child can't do that. The parent would give permission on, on, on behalf of, 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 a, uh, of that child. Um, in the case of advanced Alzheimer's disease, the same thing would have to occur for uh, for a caregiver and um, giving permission for a patient that is not um, for for a family member that is that that is not capable of making making that decision um, on their own. Now, it's it's all the most important um, part is that is for for those who have given permission. They are, are, are signing um, what is, they always have to read and understand an informed consent form. So that is a document that lays out in incredible detail what is being done, how, what, what, how long the trial goes, what are the expected outcomes. There is a whole host of, of things that, that, that um, um, the, the patient needs to understand, um, the, the trial subject needs to understand before agreeing to do such a, um, uh, a thing is, is, is being involved in, in, in the study. Um, it's also important to, to realize that patients who are involved in, in studies cannot be compelled to continue. Even if um, the study is not complete, uh, a patient has the right or an individual has the right to, um, be, be, to remove themselves 
uh, from the clinical studies any time. So there's no, people are not compelled. Um, it is purely voluntary, uh, and and that's an important, very important distinction that needs to be made. Thank you. Sharon, I'm following up on the same stream of questioning, and I'm asking you, what do you think are the really, really key points that family caregivers should consider when they're in the situation that Joe's been talking about, they're having to give permission or they're being asked to give permission on behalf of someone, child or adult, who can't really do it for themselves. What are the things that they re- the family caregiver should really think about? I'm going to answer this um, from a very personal point of view because I'm doing that very thing with my son. I have a seven-year-old who has life-threatening food allergies. That's um, anaphylaxis. He will die if he comes into contact with egg, peanut, or fish. And there are some very exciting clinical trials that are available to him in about a year that would allow him to have slow exposure to these allergens that are commonly present in all foods and restaurants and um, could kill him if he doesn't have his epinephrine, his um, EpiPen. So as a, as a mom and as an emergency room nurse and as a pharmaceutical representative of our industry, I've been very interested in understanding what are the risks to my son if I allow him to participate in these clinical trials. Um, so I, I have been talking at length with the clinical trial team to talk to the physicians who are collecting the information on, on him to understand what are the benefits and the risks. What are the discomforts that might be associated with some of the procedures like the laboratory draws or the monitoring procedures or after exposure, um, how quickly could he be given um, a treatment or a relief? Um, and those are my responsibilities as a mom anyway, but it's, it's especially cumbersome to, and I feel a lot of responsibility when you're thinking about something that could be life-threatening to him and that I'm exposing him to these treatments that could save his life, but it also could be very harmful. So all that to say, it's really incumbent on that family caregiver or, or that parent um, or that child who's considering clinical trials for their parents to really go through all those risks and benefits. It's a personal decision. you got to do a lot of homework. You've got to do a lot of talking with the clinical trial team, but the key is open dialogue. There should be no question a family caregiver is afraid to ask. There should be no question that isn't answered to that patient satisfaction. And if there's any discomfort, if you will, as uh, Doctor, as, as Joe had said, if there's any um, concern whatsoever, it is that right of that patient to get out of that clinical trial. They don't have to be subjected to the clinical trial if they feel uncomfortable or if they feel at risk at any time. But that's the whole point to that open dialogue that has to occur on the beginning at the beginning of this um, so that we can have healthy clinical trial data, we can have healthy clinical trial patients, and it can be a successful win-win, but you must have that open-ended, that open dialogue with that clinical trial team. Just to summarize back to you both, and before we go into the break, you both made very strong and important points, namely, Joe, that this is voluntary really voluntary and if something's happening that makes you think about withdrawing you do have that right and Sharon as a mom as a parent you're saying there are no questions that a family caregiver should avoid answering asking Mm -hmm. if the family caregiver feels the need to get an answer and that you're encouraging them 
to ask all of the questions because of their responsibilities and also because of their interest in furthering science through good clinical trials. A uh, powerful point from both of you. And on that particular set of points, I'm going to take the break. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guests are Sharon Brigner and Dr. Joe Hamang. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. We're coming back. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Zoom Leadership. It's the big picture issues of the day, up-close and personal capabilities of leadership, and a desirable future of constant renewal. Zoom Leadership. It's the economic crisis made clear, patterns and perspectives of leadership, and the importance of changing the way we pursue our future. Join host John Schmidt every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Zoom Leadership. An inside look at what's really going on in business, government, and civil society. Tune in every week on the Voice America Business Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on the Green Living Channel. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Sharon Brigner and Dr. Joe Hamang. Our topic is clinical trials, what family caregivers should ask. So let's talk more about the questions that family caregivers should ask about clinical trials. Now, Joe, what should family caregivers ask about the purposes and procedures of a clinical trial for which a family member is being recruited? And I'm always really asking about the situation where it's a child or an elderly adult. Uh, that is somebody who has what I'll call the responsibility that you were talking sure. about in the particular situation. Joe? Sure. Well, of course, <clears throat> many people who participate in clinical studies today um, don't need uh, a, a family caregiver or don't have one, um, so I think that's a that's an important an important point. So we we know we you are speaking of of, of children and, and and generally elderly and and that's a um, uh, that's an important uh, uh, point that you make. The for, first of all, everyone who's involved is a, is a caregiver uh, as a patient has to feel comfortable. I think Sharon made this point earlier. If you're not 
and comfortable, which is, I think, a rarity in, in clinical medicine today, then there's a problem and you should you know, um, seek additional information or, 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 or don't be involved. But I think that generally the, the sponsors of studies today are poised and ready to provide all of the information that, are, that is necessary in order uh, for um, caregivers and family members to feel, feel comfortable about um, being involved in clinical medicine. But other things that, that should be asked uh, I think are are are, are really uh, many. I mean, you could ask a, a, a just just the dozens of things, but very basic questions about what whether whether or not um, uh, what, what is being studied, what are they trying to accomplish, what are the um, um, what are the possible uh, interventions that that the, that the family member might receive during the trial. Um, what, what, what do they have to do? What is the time commitment? Um, um, how long is this going to take? Uh, there are uh, all these things are spelled out in the uh, informed consent. But again, in times of, of uh, like this, when when caregivers are are helping a, a family member, a loved one, be involved in a process like this, it. It, it, it can be daunting, it's, it's, it can be overwhelming, and the, sometimes the medical system is a little bit scary. But, again, I think there's so much wonderful information and great people who are involved in these studies who will take the time and will answer all those questions. And there's, there's nothing that, should, that, that if, if, you're, if someone is unclear, there is nothing that they should feel embarrassed about or reluctant uh, to ask in any way. Right. Sharon, what should family caregivers in the situation that we're talking about, that is where they're making decisions or getting information on behalf of children or vulnerable adults, what should family caregivers uh, ask about effects they should expect and watch out for in a family member participating in a clinical trial? I think as Joe had said, it's very reasonable for a family caregiver to ask what can, can be expected. You don't want as a um, health care provider to give your patients or their families unrealistic expectations that there's going to be a magic sudden cure at the end of the clinical trial, when indeed there might be a, a, a wonderful um, additional treatment option to them. But again, it may not work. That's part of the clinical trial. But there's some other fundamental things that a family caregiver needs to consider in addition to the risks and the benefits and, and knowing what, what, um, what their family member will have to undergo. It's such a basic question such as where's the clinical trial going to take place? A majority of clinical trials take place in a doctor's office, but patients might need to devote more time to more frequent doctor visits and physical exams than they normally need to do. So what does that do in impacting their job or their life? Um, additional responsibilities. Some of my patients had to keep hourly logs of their health conditions, um, if not quarterly throughout the day. So some people might feel that's a bit cumbersome to have to keep a journal, if you will, or a log of your health, um, health status. Um, another important question is cost. 
patients need to ask during their pre-screening interviews, how much will it cost them to participate in a clinical trial? Now, sponsors for clinical trials usually pay for the research-related costs and additional testing, but patients or their insurance companies may be asked to pay for additional routine treatments that that normally undergo for their disease. So um, cost is another important factor that a family caregiver needs to add to the list. Okay. Now, again, Joe, I'm limiting it to the family caregivers and the situation where they're making decisions for on behalf of, of some family member. Please suggest to us the questions that family caregivers should ask about the information that is collected about a family member participating in a clinical trial. Well, this question gets to... I think concerns that many folks have, whether they're uh, uh, new to this or they've done, uh, they've been involved in in studies before, they're worried about where their information is going to land, who's going to use it, who's going to benefit from it, and and of course uh, they need assurances that this is not going to end up in 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 the hands of people who are going to be making decisions um, uh, on their behalf uh, or, or insurance decisions or the like. They, people, uh, obviously everyone wants to have uh, this information as useful as possible to the, the, to the investigators and, and want the information to be part of, to, to uh, contribute to medical uh, uh, science and the advancements. They want to really have to be sure that the, that the information is is going to be held uh, confidential, that their that their uh, their data will be protected. Um, I, I think that is the uh, the crux of it. There's there's certainly um, uh, the greater and greater levels of protection. Uh, this is uh, that that are em, em, um, employed uh, year after year. Um, I believe that everyone who's involved in this really is, you know, feels uh, strongly about that, um, and and this is the this is the probably the most important issue that uh, that uh, uh, caregivers uh, face on behalf of uh, of their loved ones. Right, Sharon. Let's talk about the situation, which will happen because these things do happen, but let's. Let's not presume that it's going to happen all the time. And that is a situation where something appears to be going wrong for a family member participating in a clinical trial. What should family care caregivers ask about the possibility of that happening and about the action they should take if it does happen? I think it's essential that the patient and their family members contact that clinical trial investigator, that lead team member, to talk to them very openly and candidly about their their discomfort. Um, if they feel like they're not getting complete transparency or if they're uncomfortable with something, often I have to tell you when I saw and helped conduct clinical trials, it was a misunderstanding where a patient didn't realize that this was only going to occur, this test would only occur only once. 
or that it wouldn't indeed take as long as they thought it might. Um, it might be something very simple that could be rectified by raising your hand, if you will, and talking to that clinical trial investigator um, instead of just ceasing all activities that a patient might need to be doing to, to um, continue with that clinical trial. Because you have to look on the other end of the spectrum, too, retention of patients for clinical trials is a big challenge for us. Patients can drop out and should be able to drop out at any time if they're not comfortable. But what does that mean? It means a delay of getting important new medications and treatment. So I really have to go back to that beginning point of open dialogue. If you can have that open dialogue as a family member, as the patient with the clinical trial team and lead investigator and the entire team, um, a lot of the misunderstandings or confusions can be prevented, which might cause someone to drop out of a clinical trial. Right. In other words, to summarize back to you both, communications is is a critical issue who gets to know what and who gets information from who in various circumstances you're both stressing now i have to now go to my duty and take the break so we'll do that now um, this is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guests are Sharon Brigner and Dr. Joe Hamang. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned, we're coming back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. How do you feel about the future? Tune in each week for Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. You can be a great leader by learning from the inspiring stories of amazing visionaries who are shaping our future. Everyone deserves to create their own vision, and Kate and her guests will share the tools that you need to make it happen. Make a weekly visit to the Voice America Business Channel for Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life, every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Be inspired. Become inspiring. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. This is the home of the top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success drivers. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. 
Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Sharon Brigner and Dr. Joe Hamang. Our topic is clinical trials, what family caregivers should ask. Now, let's talk, both of you, please, about the ways to increase the benefits of clinical trials and also the protections which are required to maintain the confidence of family caregivers and their family members and, in fact, everyone. So, Joe, you first. What, would, what do you want to see done to increase clinical trials' benefits and protections? Well, I, I believe there's, there's a... There's been a, a, a recent push in, in among the pharmaceutical industry that, that really is, is, I think, people are going to begin to take notice of. As we know, out of the, out of the many compounds that undergo clinical trials in, in, for cancer, a very small number end up helping people ultimately. It's not because they're not doing a wonderful job of trying to develop medicines, but it's just very, very difficult. And the success rate is is lower than many other drugs in in um, in development today. But just recently, there's a new consortium that's been um, that is being tested from the of the pharmaceutical companies. That's that, a it's a, a work that comes out of uh, George Bush's CEO roundtable on cancer that was convened back uh, 10 or 12 years ago, um, and and it's called Datasphere. And the idea behind Datasphere is that it, it creates a this, this data repository from cancer trials that are, that are conducted um, by the drug companies and academic labs and other organizations, and, and, and it's a data sharing opportunity. So in other words, that one company does a study, they, the data from that study, because they, they tend to be smaller, these, these studies, the cancer studies tend to be smaller, uh, and, and, um, but they may be looking at very similar populations to, to another company. Uh, and by providing the background information in a, in a way that is, protects the, the patient, the, the way that protects the patient's uh, data, it, it, it offers the opportunities for, for all the companies that are researching this area, it, it oper- offers the opportunity for them to, to benefit at the same time while protecting you know, a company's uh, uh, right to to innovate and bring a new medicine to the marketplace. This is this is something that I think is we're going to see more of. Uh, I think that everyone believes that this is a wonderful development, and, and a large number of companies, uh, as I said, uh, are are involved in it. And I'm very very uh, heartened to see that, and, and I think that that will have a tremendous benefit. Uh, to cancer patients, and I, and I think that it may be the shape of of things to come. I know that the industry wants to share information where they can, and I believe that it will be incredibly important uh, to advance uh, cancer therapies and, and ultimately other therapies. Great. Sharon, same question. What do you want to see done to increase clinical trials benefits and protections? Well, I think that our clinical trials are already very, very safe. We know they're federally uh, regulated. The IRBs, the Institutional Review Boards, provide oversight of the clinical trial. 
The Declaration of Helsinki clearly outlines principles that warrant protections of patients, and pharma has even specifically developed global clinical principles that further provides guidance to our companies um, on on patient clinical trials. So I think what's already out there is, is incredibly safe and very well regulated. Again, you know, thousands and thousands of, of um, data, page, pages of data are required for clinical trials and, and um, up to 15 years of, of, of testing for efficacy and safety, as, as Joe laid out at the beginning of our show. So I'm very happy with, with the safety and the regulations that are currently involved in clinical trials, so much so that I'm considering um, having my son in a clinical trial, as I mentioned. That's a um, very great recommendation, isn't it? And it's a strange, it shows just how strong your belief is in mm-hmm. the value of and the protections. Now, I'm going to ask you both. Um, again, the same question, but for your message to family caregivers about clinical trials. And again, I want you to put yourselves in this situation. And, you know, Sharon has very courageously admitted that she's in this situation of child, maybe an aging parent. And there's a clinical trial being recommended. Uh, the the family member qualifies for it for all kinds of reasons. Um, What's your message to family caregivers, Joe, in that situation? Well, first and foremost, I salute them. They're absolutely critical to medicine uh, today, and they're making important, critical contributions you know, many times, as you say, on behalf of of those who who can't make that decision on their own, it's a confusing time. It's a time where emotions run high, and and um, are they're they're only wanting the best. Probably, they may be cash strapped. They may be. Distraught about the the illness that the that, that their family member and the family is facing, but but their their courage to to go through with this and to and to uh, participate uh, this way and to allow the participation is is absolutely it's it's awe inspiring in, in in many cases because there is no guarantee that any individual their loved one will benefit um, directly from the study, but they know, they can know going into these studies that they will contribute uh, to to advancing our knowledge. Uh, and, and hopefully, as I said earlier, the the as as new methods of of uh, data gathering and and of data sharing uh, become more uh, prevalent down the road, which I believe they will. Uh, they will. They can rest assured that they're going to be, uh, if not seeing direct benefits for their loved one, they will be producing. Um, they will be participating in a in, in the development of advances and you know to uh, um, uh, bring new cares and therapies to uh, to patients who who desperately need them. Right. Sharon, same question. What's your message to family caregivers about clinical trials? Well, again, to echo what Joe had said, they are courageous. I mean, any patient or caregiver that's looking at clinical trials as a potential new treatment option or 
or one that might be available for for a loved one is I mean you're obviously already open-minded but information is power and you really need to go back to understanding and doing all of your homework on the clinical trial with the clinical trial team. There's a list of questions you can think of before you go into that pre-assessment, but it's the questions that'll come after you meet with the clinical trial team and even often after the clinical trial begins that you need to be able to be uninhibited, answer the, ask those questions, feel like you have those answered to your satisfaction, but dig for information. Um, pharma refers patients to the clinicaltrials.gov website, which is www.clinicaltrials.gov trials.gov, the NIH website, or even to the university or hospital websites. They have incredible resources on the hospital websites that list clinical trials that are open right there in their own institutions or in local institutions, as well as the patient disease groups, the organizations, for example, Parkinson's, um, the, the Parkinson's uh, Association that might lead a patient or a loved one to a clinical trial in their area. So those are important resources that you can get information, and of course, your healthcare provider is a number one resource. If he or she doesn't have information on clinical trials and you want more, you don't stop asking. You ask until you can get the information you need because it's important to understand what you might be missing. I mean, you, don't, you want to be able to know everything you can about the clinical trial before you embark on this important process, and it could mean um, a potential new cure for you or your loved one. Yeah. Now, I'm going to just put a question back to you both um, about the handling of information. And I want to make a co another comment to you. But first, information. When you're talking about trials uh, individually, now being the data being combined from one trial to another, so that there's that bigger picture where it's not just a series of small, unrelated trials, but rather a pooling of data. One of the things that um, is becoming more and more important is methods of removing the identity data of the individuals so that wherever that information goes, nobody can figure out that it's Gordon or Sharon or Joe. Um, it's just a person. But all the information is there except the, the information that um, identifies the individual. Just as a quick question to you both, am I right in supposing that's going to be the strategy for protecting information? Well, that is exactly what is being done. Um, De-identifying is the term used uh, by, uh, by the investigators. Uh, that is... Um, uh, an absolute necessity under these circumstances. Uh, uh, I think that we can we can assume that the the safeguards that will be taken are going to be as as tight as they can possibly be, and that uh, um, and this that this information is is going to be held uh, very very carefully. There are. It, it, not time, there's not time to go through it now, but the de-identification process by coding, giving um, uh, specific uh, uh, code numbers uh, uh, to to individual patients uh, is is rather um, uh, it's it rather sophisticated, but it is done every day, and I think that our ability to 
to to do that going forward will will be refined, and I think that people can feel that. Joe, I'm going to have to stop you there because the sorry. tyranny of timing is catching up with us. So I'm sorry, I just Sharon. want to. Uh, no problem. I just want to say to both of you this, that sometimes, you know, citizens are a bit overwhelmed by these large companies or large hospitals or famous institutions or something. Yep. And what I think you both have demonstrated, that there's individuals, there are professionals like you two on the inside of those organizations that not only know and understand, what the concerns and the questions and the fears and the anxieties and the hopes might be of family caregivers, but you're actually wanting to support them and inform them and answer their questions. And so that sort of element of professionalism um, is something that I think the public uh, can be reassured by. And I think it's profoundly important, and it's something that I would like to thank you both for. Now, at that point, I have to say thank you, Sharon, and thank you, Joe, for sharing with us so much experience, insight, and advice. And I want to wish you both every success in your work. Now, I want to say thank you to our listeners, and we'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And also from our listeners, we'd like to hear from you about ideas for topics, maybe a follow-up to this, or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. In our next episode, we'll talk about support for families after workplace tragedy. Please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.